Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Catherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and this is the Right to Read Initiative. This is a advocacy movement that I started based on the release of the Ontario Human Rights Commission's Right to Read Public Inquiry, the report and its recommendations. Make sure that you take a moment to like and follow us on Facebook uh, and on Twitter at R2R Initiative. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by D.O. Tool from Ireland, and we're talking about the disconnect between phonics instruction and the leveled text that we see in so many of our classrooms. Good day, Dee. Why don't you give our listeners and viewers a little bit of information about who you are and what you do? Thank you, Catherine. I'm absolutely honoured. I mean, some of the names that you've had on here, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> but like I said, I'm just a teacher on the ground. I'm not um, I'm not an expert or anything. I'm just a teacher on the ground who's interested in early literacy in particular. Um, I, um, I've been teaching for 17 years um, in Ireland. Um, when you qualify as a primary school teacher, you can teach from any age from four up to 12, 13. Um, my um, passion, I suppose, is, is the smaller kids. I, I really enjoy the, the small kids, even though I spent a lot of time in, in the older classes. Um, I um, run an Instagram page called Playful Classroom. Um, it's on Facebook as well. And um, I suppose through that, I've met so many wonderful teachers all over the globe, from Canada to the States to um, the UK to Australia. and just learning so much from other teachers um you know more than I ever learned in college or anything like that um about a year ago I started a Facebook group um called the science of reading for a discussion for Irish teachers so um it was just I suppose um I was talking to a few different people online and you know there's there's, there's no space for us to to discuss this because it's it's not really present from our department of education or anything like that so we just wanted a, a place where we could you know talk about the articles we're reading and the books that we're reading and what we're learning so that um has grown to um it's about 1300 members now um which considering there's only 40,000 primary teachers in Ireland that's it's quite a lot so I'm just delighted that so many people are interested in learning um, learning more and learning all the time, um, which is just think something that you know teachers should really embrace is learning. And we never know it all. Like it's it's so important that we're acknowledge that we're learning every day. So that's me. Of course. Well, I don't think you should say that you're just a teacher, only a teacher, <laughs> and that I've had you know so many big names that I've spoken to because honestly, I think there's that huge disconnect between research and practice. And if we're only talking to the people that are doing the research and the studies and have that, not necessarily the laboratory setting, but they don't have the real life, everyday perspective. And even doing a study in a classroom uh, in you know, with the teacher, it's very different from having that class every day, all day, all school year. And other teachers want to know what other teachers think who are yes. doing right now in the trenches. Um, so please don't discount your background or your knowledge because it, it, the, it, the wonderful thing about reading all these articles and these uh, research papers and books is I can go into school the very next day and try out something that I've been reading or I can go in and I can say oh that that's what they were talking about you know so it's it's day to day it's just a, like a constant kind of spiral of making these connections and um, and figuring out what's going on in these kids brains yeah of course um, so today I, I forgot to say what, what age group I teach so I teach what we call junior infants here so um the first two 
years of school are called infants, junior infants and senior infants. So the kids are all turning five um, during that first year of school. And that's and that's what I'm teaching at the moment. Right. So in, in North America, we typically consider that junior kindergarten. Um, but it can all it, you know, even though you're talking about junior infants, junior kindergarten isn't mandated in a lot of places here Mm -hmm. and even kindergarten or five-year-olds is optional in some places as well so the the information that we're talking about is applicable to any student in their first year of schooling when they're learning about the basics and the foundation and we're speaking two days back to back. I'm really excited. So today we're focusing on the disconnect between phonics and leveled texts uh, that we see in our classrooms. And tomorrow you're actually going to get us some of the inside scoop of what you're doing in your classroom with your students. And I'm super excited to see that. Uh, and just as a reminder for anyone listening live, the links and resources that we speak about during this conversation will be made available on the replay. And if you are listening to the podcast episode, you can find that information in the description. So I think a great way for us to start this conversation is just by talking about what phonics instruction is. And acknowledging that not all phonics programs are equal. So basically phonics as a broad term refers to the teaching of the grapheme phoneme correspondence, which is a technical term. But if we're going, you know, for everyday everyday term, it means teaching the letter sound relationships and the English language is complex. And we have 44 phonemes or sounds within the English language, depending on dialect and location. But our alphabet only has 26 letters, regardless of where you live. So uh, phonics instruction is teaching the relationships between the two of those. Some programs just focus on the 26 letters of the alphabet and leave it there, while others are more detailed in the order that you teach these letters and sound correspondences and aren't just including those 26 letters. They also include things like digraphs, which are two letters that represent one sound like TH representing the or the sound. Trigraphs, which are three letters representing one sound like IGH representing I and so on and so forth. So do you, what do you see in Ireland as far as most of the phonics programs that we're looking at? So when I started teaching, um, Jolly Phonics was just gaining momentum in Ireland. So mm-hmm. um, it's a, a British program. Mm-hmm. And um, before that, I mean, phonics was taught, but um, I suppose it was, there was no kind of agreed like sequence or or anything like that um so jolly phonics it kind of it 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 got very popular very quickly over the space of a couple of years i'd say it was in probably 90 95 percent of schools um now bearing in mind is a british program in an irish school so um our english is actually slightly different we we speak what's called hiberno english um, so there are um, a lot of influences from the Irish language on the way that we speak English. So it's it's different than American English, um, Australian English and British English. So um, th- there's a, a few little things in there that weren't exactly what we needed. But, you know, it was it was a program and people were following it and it was something concrete. So that was great. Um, so it was intended to be. Um, I think there's 42 sounds in it and it was intended that you would teach one a day um, and then you would repeat the cycle over over the course of the year. And um, in Ireland, it was like, oh, we can't do one a day. That's crazy. <laughs> so um, a lot of teachers started doing one a week. They said, oh, right, well, if we do one a week, you know, we'll cover the 26 letters of the alphabet by the end of the year. So, so that would work. 
and I know letter of the week was a, was a big thing um, over in, in North America as well. Um, so it didn't sort of, it just kind of happened naturally that way. It wasn't um, any big decision or directive from anywhere. It was just what people started doing. So it was like the first week of September, let's start with the letter S and then we'll do A-T-I-P-N. And people could see the merit of Jolly Phonics and there is a lot of merit in it. And um, it was systematic um, and it was quite explicit. And um, so some junior infants teachers would have done 42 sounds, some would have done just the 26 letters of the alphabet. So that kind of varied and it still does. And then what would happen is we'd continue on to senior infants and um, they would obviously revise everything that was done. And then they would continue on with the 42 sounds, usually doing one spelling for each of the 42 sounds. Some teachers may have done more, but I think usually it was just one spelling for each for each um, each sound. Not necessarily the most common spelling, <laughs> but one, one, one spelling anyway. And um, so a lot of teachers like myself, you know, given this manual, you know, and said, off you go. No, no training whatsoever. Um, and so I, I dove into it and I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, I was quite interested in phonics, but um, like I remember coming to the, the voiced and unvoiced TH, hadn't a clue, hadn't a clue for years. I just I knew it was there, but I didn't know what it meant at all. And I had no explanation. I had nowhere to go to, to find out. Nobody seemed to know. So we just we just keep going. And uh, like we knew what digraphs were, but um, that was about as far as it went. Um, and then in the two years after that, so the first two years, you know, usually the Jolly Phonics. Then after that, things are a bit more haphazard. There's um, again, there's no defined uh, scope and sequence. Um, it's, it's kind of left up to schools um, and teachers themselves to, to figure out what phonics um, to do after that. Um, and in some cases it would be none. Um, thinking, oh, well, they've done Johnny Phonics, so it's done. Um, and not, not out of any malice or anything like that, just because people didn't know or don't know any better. Um, so I was, you know, I, I gave I gave Johnny Phonics a good shot. Um, I found I had to make a lot of my own resources because there wasn't much there. I, I knew I needed more um, just to, I suppose, consolidate what I was doing. Um, what a lot of um, schools had at that time as well was what we call a core reader or a class reader. So just this one reading book that the whole class had and you would use it over the course of the year. Um, and I remember making lists of the words that were in the book. And, well, I have to teach them these words before I give them the book because I can't expect them to read it when they don't know any of the words. So I was giving them these lists of sight words to go home and learn. Um, and I had my flashcards up on the wall and, you know, I'd show them the word and I'd say, say the words. Um, that was it. And I sent them home the lists and I, and I assessed them. I did checklists, checking them all off. But they all went through this reader at the same pace, no matter what their their ability levels were. Now, I knew that this wasn't right, um, but again, didn't really know what to do outside of that. Um, and around this time, my um, my son um, started school and he struggled in the beginning. He I remember the, the, the flashcards you know, trying to do the sight words and getting nowhere with them. Um, I couldn't understand why he wasn't able to, to retain these sight words. So I started um, using some decodable readers with them. Um, I used the Songbirds by Julia Donaldson. I don't know if you know those ones. Uh, they're one of my favorites. I love them. Uh, the, some of the language in it is a bit, you know, contrived, but they but they have lovely illustrations and they are you know, following a very specific uh, scope and sequence, uh, which matches quite well with the Jolly Phonics, actually. Um, so, so that that worked well for him, and um, you know, we made we made progress. Um, and then a couple of years later, I moved schools, and I discovered they didn't have 
this class reader for the whole class. And I was just delighted. I was like, yes, differentiation. This is brilliant. So we had leveled readers for um, the end of junior infants and then all through senior infants. Um, and I was like, this is fantastic. I can all the children at their own level. And, you know, I can really push on my um my high achieving kids and, you know, my my weaker kids, I can give them more support with something more appropriate. Um, so I was delighted. And then I had um, guided reading. Um, so I had guided reading every day for 45 minutes and I had um, a reading recovery teacher um, in every day to support me with that. So I took a lot of um, guidance from her, I suppose, because I didn't know what else to do. Um, and so we did guided reading as as it as it goes so um the children she assessed the children um using the the pm benchmark uh, kit and we we grouped them into five groups and and we gave them the leveled readers and and off we go so i was you know working with the the, the weaker groups and i remember you know, doing the, the level one readers with them and they had to, they were supposed to have their book for two days. And I remember after the first day I said, I, I, I have to give them a new book. I can't give them this book again because they've learned it off by heart and they're not looking at the words. So I knew something wasn't, wasn't right there, but I didn't really understand what was wrong. I just knew something wasn't right. And um, these kids were really, really struggling. Like really, really struggling. Um, we had Just one second. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit about what a leveled text is <laughs> uh, before we go into more detail about the disconnect that we were seeing. Just in case, um, just so we have make sure that there's common ground to our language, mm -hmm. right? So that leveled text is something that uh, is put out by various reading programs and a lot of them are predictable or follow a pattern and are asking the students to predict what comes next in the conversation or in the, in the story or look at the pictures uh, and, and guess what they think would fit well. Now, the problem with this is they're not actually looking at the words. And when we have a predictable text, or a leveled text that has the same intro throughout the story, where it's talking about, I like the color red. And then on the next page, it's, I like the color blue. The next page is, I like the color yellow. The kids can figure out the story pattern fairly quickly, and they're able to look at the pictures to get clues. Oh, okay. So it's, I like the color and then it has the color. Maybe it has a picture of banana for yellow. Mm -hmm. So I don't actually have to look at the words. I can just look at the pictures and say what the first few words were. Now, some students may still be able to learn how to read this way. We're not saying that some students don't, but it's not going to teach all of your students how to read. And if we're looking at these words, they're not following the scope and sequence of the phonics program. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, the level one readers are exactly like you described. So look at that. And then the, the last word in the sentence changes with each page and you look at the picture to, to finish the sentence. So these words can be I mean, they could be anything. They, they could be words with two or three syllables, words with complex um, phonics patterns and, and uncommon um, vowel teams. You know, um, I was looking at some level ones today and, you know, we've got words like cowboy, dinosaur, laughing. I mean, if this is level one, and we can't expect children as their first lot of readers to be able to read those words, to be able to decode those words. So we know they can't decode them. So how else are they going to know what it is? Like you said, they're going to look at the picture. Mm -hmm. So they're designed in that way. Um, now, obviously, not all leveled texts are like that. So that's level one. 
Level two moves it on a little bit. So you've got the same idea, but with longer sentences. So there's one um, like the cow is big and the calf is little. And then the next page, the pig is big and the piglet is little and so on. Um, but the same idea. Level three, again, very, very similar, but you might have two short sentences on the page. Um, I think the idea is that they're learning the return sweep to go down onto the next line. Um, but again, you're getting words like hungry, butterfly, asleep, words that there's there's no way that kids at this age or, you know, stage of their um, their reading journey are going to be able to decode. So they have no choice. They have no choice but to guess or predict what the word is based on the information in the picture and, you know, maybe some information from the the context or the, the, the sentence structure. So basically by using levels one, two and three of level readers, you're training children to guess. Yeah, well, and I wanted to, so this is uh, a common level or a couple common uh, series that is a leveled text. And on this book, you'll see that it says my first, so it has four rankings for these books and it's saying that my first is ideal for sharing with emergent readers number one is simple sentences for eager new readers number two is engaging stories longer sentences and language for language play for developing readers and then complex plots for confident readers and then it's guided reading level m so even though that it's saying that for developing readers, we're saying that it's level M. So that's fairly far along in the process of mm. uh, instruction. And when we look at phonics instruction and in a systematic explicit phonics program, you're going to typically start with a letter sequence. One that you mentioned earlier with the Jolly Phonics is the mm -hmm. Saxon. So the first six letters that you're teaching the students are S, A, T, P, I, N. So S, T, P, I, N, A. I did that out of order. But anyways, you get the picture. So when you're teaching those letters, you are going to be asking the students to sound out one two and three letter words using those letters. Now with those six letters, there are more than 40 English words that students will have in their vocabulary and be able to sound out using just those six letters. Now this gives a huge feeling of success because they're real words that the kids understand and know. But and not only can they read them, but they can write them too. Exactly. And that's another important part of a phonics program or a quality phonics program that we want to be using is one that has both reading and writing paired or reading and spelling paired together because that helps our students solidify the word in their mind. So if we were to look at this book, even at an earlier stage, I think... Um, this is a Disney version that, so they have pre-readers, which is level one or pre-one beginning to read level one, which is expanded vocabulary, longer sentences, dialogue and rhyme. And so if I turn to the, you know, one of the pages, there are a lot of two syllable words on there. And while most of them have a fairly simple spelling pattern, I wouldn't be confident that the ages four to six that are recommended on the back of this book would necessarily have the code to do that. Now, there are other book series uh, that are decodable texts that we've talked about. Now, this is one that is more advanced in the beginning series. But you can see that most of the words in this book are simple, what are often referred to as CVC or consonant, vowel, consonant. 
So the is a word that you would teach your students as a high frequency word. Now it is decodable when students have the code because there's that TH, which is the dry graph for it. And the E says the uh or the E sound. Now that's not one that you're gonna teach right away, but you can mention it to them as you're going through and introducing this book. But P, E, T, pet, they can sound that out with their skills. B, at, bat, again, with their skills, when they've been introduced the right code, they can read books like this. Now, of course, this isn't necessarily high quality literature that's gonna be engaging and teaching them vocabulary, but that's not the point of this activity. Absolutely. The point of this activity is to get them to read the book with the skills that they have. It's all and- about practicing the skills that they've been learning, practicing the skills of decoding. Um, and I suppose that's, that's where there's that disconnect between the leveled readers and the, and the phonics instruction because, and it took me quite a while to, to realize this disconnect. Um, I knew something wasn't right, but I didn't know what it was. And um, like if, if, if we're giving them a predictable sentence or a book to read, um, like you said, they're not going to look at the words. They're going to predict or guess what the word will be. So they might look at maybe the initial letter in the word, but they're not going to look at the whole word. So that word is not going to um, go into their long-term memory. Whereas that book you had there, The Pet Bat, you know, there's a good chance that the words pet and bat, they probably come up a, a good bit in the story. There's a good chance that those, those words are going to be mapped in their brain and stored in long-term memory. Um, I'm sure you've seen it, um, Catherine, but there's a, a video on YouTube um, and anyone who is kind of doubting me here, I urge you to go and watch this video. It's called The Purple Challenge. And it's where... I will um, the links. Yes, um, a parent um, reads this leveled text with her child. Um, and the, um, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's something with purple. So the word purple comes up like 12 or 13 times in the book. And then after reading it, which, and she reads it fine. And after reading it, um, well, the shows are the word purple in isolation and the child has no idea how to read the word. The child does not recognize the word at all. But then when she does a little bit of um, explicit phonics instruction on the er um, sound and the or spelling, the child can then decode the word purple. So sometimes I think, or well, I thought for a long time that, you know, this kind of osmosis would work. You know, if they're exposed to the word enough times, well, then they'll learn it. Um, and that can work to a certain extent with some kids who are very good, um, who have very good visual memory. Um, but it doesn't work um, for everybody. And it's very, very, very unreliable. Um, and it also doesn't teach that spelling relationship. Exactly. Yeah. So they're, they're, you're not you're learning, you know, you learn one word, you know, one word you learn S-A-T-I-B-N. You can read 40 odd words. So, you know, that's that's what we want to teach a man to fish. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're opening up doors for them to to be able to decode um, more and more complex things all the time. Um, and if, if you I think most teachers would start with 26 um, letters of the alphabet and the most common sound for each of those letters. So even if a child has all those 26 letters and the short vowels and knows them really well. You give them one of those level one or the, you know, the very first um, level readers. There is lots in that that they cannot decode. But if you give them a book that has lots of CVC words with short vowels in them, well, then they, there's, there's so much that they can read. And then, and they're practicing that decoding of CVC words. And I know you don't want to spend too much time on CVC words, but it is, I suppose, a level or a stage, like it's a developmental stage where they need a lot of practice at that stage before they can move on to consonant blends or diagraphs because they're harder. So they do need to master that 
CVC, so consonant, vowel, consonant, three sounds in the word, they really need to master that. And they can't master it unless they get practice at it. And I've seen children who, you know, are reading maybe level 16, you know, words like shouted, you know, that can't read CVC words fluently. So what the level texts are doing is it's giving this appearance of um, proficient reading. Whereas really what they're very good at is guessing. Um, they're very good at learning a pattern um, and predicting what kind of words that come next. And these level readers are written in that way to, to encourage that. Um, they're, they're written very, very carefully so that this is, is what the children do. They use that three cueing system using the meaning structure and visual. Visual is supposed to be looking at the word, but often it's looking at the picture. Um, you know, so they're, they're made in that way so that the children will achieve success using the meaning structure and visual cues rather than decoding. If a child tries to decode one of these leveled readers and they're not a proficient reader they're you know maybe a struggling reader or just any kind of average beginning reader you know they can't decode words like pencil or lamb or um hungry you know until they've gotten to the stage in their phonics instruction where they've learned those particular patterns and skills um i've kind of lost my train of thought here <laughs> Okay. I well, one thing talking. that I wanted to mention on that is when they, they learn with these leveled text and they make their way through the alphabet because it's often alphabetically leveled. Yes, yes, sorry, it's, we use numbers mostly here, but I oh, know. Oh, do you? Okay. Well, numbers yeah. or letters, whichever, doesn't really matter. But so he, here in, in North America, we often say, you know, kindergarten to grade three are the years that you learn to read right mm -hmm. and then in grade four and above then you're reading to learn but we often see a number of students hit that brick wall because in the you know the the books that we're using the level texts the predictability and the, the tools that they've been taught, if they've been taught with that three queuing method, no longer apply because once they start reading more of the academic language and the academic texts, they can't rely on the pictures and the context because they won't necessarily have the background knowledge to do so. Especially and then, if they're a struggling reader. Yeah. And then, so you have them at this point where they're like, well, I thought I could read. I, you know, I, I did really good. Everybody was said that I was reading. And then they're surprised. And, you know, the parents are surprised. Well, the books that were sent home for home reading, yeah, we, we read those. I, you know, I did the 20 minutes a night or however much was recommended. Why aren't they reading? Why don't they understand what's happening? And that's hard on the family. It's hard on the student. And then it's hard on the teachers that, are looking at you know the previous reports for the students. This says, oh yeah, they're reading, but then they get to their class and like, well, no, they're not. They're, they're, they can't read this textbook. And uh, you know, I always like to highlight in these conversations that as a teacher, it's not your fault for using uh, the resources yeah. that are available to you in your school and recommended for you in your school and that you were trained to use. It is not your fault if you are using them because you're being told to, right? It's not your fault if your curriculum is designed with these in mind and you're having to teach to it. It can be very frustrating. And especially when you start to realize that maybe this really isn't best practices and then being put in that awkward position where you can either use what's provided to you or spend a lot of your own money to purchase the resources that you need to help your students get to where they're supposed to be getting to. And, you know, 
pay for the additional training. I mean, as educators, I think whether you realized it or not, you've signed up to be a lifelong learner. And as we're discovering with all these Facebook groups, there are a lot of us out there that are always wanting to know more, wanting to know what's best for our students. And it's unfortunate that we have to turn to others in a a social networking setting to get the answers and not being able to turn to our boards. Fortunately, it does exist. So we can create these global communities and connections to learn more and learn better so we can do better. But remember, it's not your fault. (sighs) Yeah, I think it's, it's really important to highlight that teachers are doing their best in good faith Mm -hmm. you know um like say using what's in the classroom using what they've been told by their colleagues using what they were told in college using what they're told even by the you know department of education um and what happens a lot in ireland unfortunately is doing what we're told by the educational publishers um so some of them really push the level of readers big time um like this this, this is the best thing that you can get. Like, look at this, your differentiated levels and, um, you know, making it sound amazing. And teachers might not have the time or the, or the wherewithal to look at it with a critical eye and say, oh, hold on, is this the best thing that's mm-hmm. for our kids? Is this worth spending thousands, thousands of euro on? Um, and it, it like it's it's not it's not easy when you don't you don't have that knowledge um, or experience. And I know even myself, you know, I, I read some of these, you know, studies and reports and articles and some of them you know, academic language. And you're like, oh, my God, I can't understand this. You know, it can be really difficult. And then, you know, you hear you know, one person saying one thing and then you hear somebody else saying the complete opposite. How do you know what's the right thing? Mm-hmm. Like, how, how are you supposed to to know what to do and what what's the best way? Um, so it, it's it's really hard um, for teachers. Um, and, you know, especially if they're. You know, in a position where they're underpaid or, um, you know, they're you know, having a hard time in their school um, with the kids or with, you know, their colleagues or their management, you know, so it's. It's not easy. And, you know, we get that. I mean, I say I'm teaching 17 years, but it's only really since COVID that I've actually taken a deep dive into, you know, some real like professional development. Like I've done lots of courses over the years or whatever, but I think it came to a time in my life where I was like, yeah, I'm ready for this. I'm ready to learn more. I'm ready to study um, whereas, you know, I, I have kids and, you know, everyone has a different time in their life where they're ready for that. And we can't expect everybody to to be ready for that at the same time. It just it's worked out for me in the last few years of COVID. And, you know, all of a sudden there was all these webinars all over the world that I could attend and this training that I could do online, which was like mind blowing. And of course, then online shopping. So I was you know, buying books every, <laughs> every second day. Oh, I need to buy that one. I need to buy this one. And I think that's a trap that a lot of teachers fall into. They hear a lot of these great big books like uh, Mark Seidenberg's Language at the Speed of Sight, uh, Stannis Haynes, Reading in the Brain. And these are amazing books. I'm not saying that they're not. But they're not the first books that you should go and read when you want to Seidenberg was one of my first. And that was a tough read. <laughs> and it's enough to scare anyone if you're not yeah. familiar with the language and the concepts, especially when you're getting into the books that do a deep dive into the neuropsychology mm-hmm. and start talking about the neuroanatomy and all the studying and imaging. It can be overwhelming, even for someone that has a background in neuropsychology or you know, has a good understanding of the anatomical structure of the brain. It's, it's overwhelming. So it's helpful to be able to do it in a safe place 
with the support around you, but we have to be cognizant of the fact that that doesn't always exist. And that's why, you know, there was the great Facebook groups. You mentioned yours, the science of reading discussion for Irish teachers. I know for a fact, there are people that are not from Ireland in that group. And a lot of these groups, even even though they may say that they are for this location, a lot of them welcome other individuals from various areas. I know I do have the Right to Read Initiative Facebook group, and it's just meant to be that common place where you can have a safe place to ask questions, get answers, and know to where to look for your next steps. And, you know, finding that mentor or having someone to say, yeah, look, I totally understand what you're talking about. I've been through it too. This is what I found helpful. And I'm really happy that we're in a place that allows this because there is this big change. And then one thing that you mentioned talking about, you know, you and your classroom, you're talking about having that reading recovery influence. Mm -hmm. And that still is very alive and well in many parts of the world. And, you know, there is new, well, not new research. And I think it's important (laughs) to say as well that like, you know, the, the teachers that are in, who are trained in reading recovery, you know, they're highly trained in this and they're, you know, very experienced and very, very knowledgeable. And like I say, in good faith, they're doing what they think is the best for their kids. Um, you know, when you go and you look into the, the neuropsychology and everything of it, okay, you can see there's, there's that disconnect between it there. But like I say, people are just doing their best. Um, you know, we've got that that famous saying from Maya Angelou that when you know better, you do better. Um, but um, it was that whole, you know, it was the brain imaging. That's what swung it for me. When I saw that, you know, that they've studied and, you know, hundreds, hundreds of studies, not just one, hundreds of studies, you know, looking at what actually happens in the brain when people read, it was like, well, well, this is what happens. Like there's no there's no contesting this this is irrefutable obviously science is is always developing and evolving and nothing is ever fully settled but we know what happens in the brain we know what skills readers do we know what struggling readers do we know how the pathways in the brain develop because we're not born readers um language and spoken language is completely different to reading and writing even mm. though we think they're connected. They're two completely different things. Spoken language is not natural. Reading is not. So that's why the, all that brain imaging has been done um, yeah. so that we can understand it. And now we know. So now that we know, we can use that to do better. And like you said already, there, like there is that big gap between the research and then the classroom practice. And that, that is a problem. Um, we need the all that information to be a bit more accessible. We need the research researchers to maybe link in more with on the ground teachers. Um, you know the, the, that that gap is it's it's getting narrower, but it's still a big gap. Um, and I think the the powers that be, departments of education and and whatnot. They need to do something to to cross that bridge for us because it's very difficult for teachers on the ground to to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm just, just gone on tangents, like. <laughs> and, but I suppose maybe we could talk a little bit about the you know that whole you know the the brain imaging and, and orthographic mapping because you know it's really important when it comes to that. Um, We're talking about disconnect, right? So between the the phonics and the, and the, and the level reading. Yeah. Well, and when we read and when we're talking about neuroimaging studies, we're not just talking about one type. It's not just fMRIs. We actually had the first um, recordings of the brain reading words in the 1980s. And that was using the PET scans. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, so now we have the MRI and the fMRIs, and we even have 
ECGs. And um, there have been studies where they've actually had electrodes in the brain measuring uh, the changes because different studies have their different imaging techniques have their different advantages and disadvantages and the way they measure things. So we can see what areas of the brain light up when and how things are being done. It's really, oh, if you like that sort of thing, it's really fascinating. And it's absolutely fascinating. And I never thought this would be something I'd be interested in, but I find it just like so, so fascinating. Yeah. And so not a lot of people know this or not a lot of teachers know this and that's okay because it's not in their teaching education programs, but there are different areas of the brain that light or are used for facial recognition, for letter recognition and for object recognition, and even for like places and buildings. So these are different areas that are close together, but they are used for different features. And when we're asking children to guess and look at the pictures and look at features, they're using different parts of the brain than we want them to use. And we're taking the attention away from the part of the brain that processes the letters themselves and teaching them to do that takes away from their ability to process the letters and map it. So orthographic mapping is a big term that's complex, but it means the ability to read when a word is orthographically mapped an individual can recognize it within a fraction of a second. And that's the goal we want for our readers. And a proficient readers has over 50,000 words orthographically mapped. And so they can recognize it and just go along very smoothly when they're reading text. That's what we want for fluent reading. And that's, I think, the goal of all reading teachers, to have their students read fluently with ease and expression. But, and, um, you know, 50,000 words, you're kind of average for, you know, the skilled, the skilled adult reader. But if you are going to learn your words as a, a whole, like by shape, um, you know, you're, you're going to max out at about 2,000, two and a half thousand words, because like you say, you're not using the, the exact same part of the brain. You're, you're recognizing it as an object as opposed to processing the letters in the words, which we do. Mm-hmm. all the time <laughs> well and honestly so when you're getting them to do that you're working more if, if you're looking cognitively so dr linnea airy has these four stages of word reading development and the first is a pre-alphabetic phase and that's when you see little kids who have memorized things like logos and words, but only in certain situations. So if they see a stop sign, a red stop sign with the right letters that says STOP, they know it says stop. They can't tell you why, but they know that that looks like stop. But if you change one of the letters, like the, the T to an L, they won't notice. They'll still say that it says stop. And, you know, as an adult, you're like, well, no, it actually says slop but they're not going to recognize that because they don't actually understand it. So yes, it's a little bit, we're not talking at that level. When we're talking about teaching the shape of the word. That's where mm-hmm. it gets tricky because we're not teaching them to actually look at the features and understand why. And having that understanding of why a word is spelt the way it is. And it says the way that it is. Uh, makes it so that we can map it better. And another thing that helps with orthographic mapping is making sure that we include the spelling component to our lesson and actually get them, especially at the lower level, to you know practice printing and learning the spelling of the words because when they're they're having a multimodal sensory input, so they're seeing it, they're writing it and they should be saying it at those early stages. And with our beginning readers, it takes a number of times before they map the word, right? So they can recognize Mm -hmm. it within that fraction of a second. But as we increase the exposure, they get better and better at doing it. And by the time a good reader hits about grade four, they only need a couple exposures 
to a word, sometimes even one before it's orthographically mapped. And that's how we see adult proficient readers have those 50,000 words because and it's, it's, as, as an adult, um, you know, if you see a word that you've never seen before, like it could be a brand name or, you know, somebody's name in another language or even like uh, dinosaurs are always a good, a good example. <laughs> yeah. Like there's so many dinosaurs with these really long names and you look at that and you can't just say it straight away if you've never seen it before you have to you have to decode it um and then maybe the next time you see it you might need to decode it but um mightn't take you as long and then maybe by the third time you see that word you know it like that you know it in that quarter of a second um it's because it's orthographically mapped and that's the same thing with what we're doing with children at the CVC level and those simple words. We, you know, repeated opportunities to decode those words will orthographically map them in their brain and store them in their long term memory. And the other thing about that long term memory is it's permanent. Once you learn how to read a word, you don't you don't lose it. It doesn't fade over time. Um, like and I've, it's I've, longer to decode it than to orthograph one is ortho- like you can just see yes. it say it and it, it's you're not decoding it mm-hmm. right yeah. uh you you know it right away and it's just and you can't not read it if you see yeah. a word and you're like if i showed you a word now and it, like i put it up on the screen and i say don't read this word you can't not read it because yeah, it's all like that done. reaction yeah, yeah. So I guess, you know, the, the main thing that we're trying to get across in this conversation is that phonics instruction is essential. We need to teach beginning readers the relationship between the letters of the alphabet and the sounds that they represent. We don't just teach one sound for the 26 letters. There are a few that only make one sound, and those are mainly consonants, but we have numerous vowel sounds. And we need to make sure that students learn how to read the words, because then they're going to have the ability when they're older to sound out those dinosaur names. Um, and if anyone has a child that has had any interest in dinosaurs, when you're reading some of these books that tell you about 101 different dinosaurs, <laughs> you definitely need those skills. I promise you. Or if you're going to medical school or like reading, you know, um, different chemical names, right? You hear a lot of, a lot of adults, you know, will say, oh, but I never was taught phonics. I don't, I didn't learn phonics. I don't know phonics. So like, you don't need it. When actually, maybe you weren't taught it, but you know phonics, you know letter sound correspondences. Otherwise you'd never be able to read an unknown word. Mm -hmm. So whether or not you were taught them, and I suppose maybe what about 20%, just going back to Nancy Young's ladder of reading, maybe about 20% of people will learn to read well no matter what way they're taught Mm -hmm. with a little bit of phonics with a lot of phonics with no phonics you know as long as they're taught in some way five percent of people will just learn by themselves um but i don't think learning by themselves is the best way to put it because they're it's not like they're you know devoid of books no (laughs) and and (laughs) just pick it up exposure to letters for the first five years of their life and they're handed the book and they automatically know it they have exposures to print they have several exposures to print and maybe the activities that their parents are doing at home while they are reading stories is enough for them to learn how to read and so I always like to add that caveat. It's not like they're not having any instruction. They're just not I having that same formal phonics. Scout into Kill Mockingbirds. Yeah. You know, she went to school reading, but it was because she sat on Atticus's knee every evening while he read the paper. And that's how she learned how to read. So we didn't teach her how to read. She just picked it up from that. And there, we, we do we do get this, those kids, maybe one in each class mm-hmm. um, that can do that. But, but even... Like I say, if they haven't been taught phonics, they still know all those letter sound correspondences. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I often see it, you know, when I'm arguing with people on Twitter and they're like, oh, yeah, well, I was never taught phonics. But, you know, look at me, I'm doing fine. I'm like, no, you, you do know phonics. You do. 
if, mm-hmm. if, if you can read, you, you know phonics. Um, you to be able to explain, explain it. Exactly. And I took, like, I'm only now learning how to explain it. Yes. You know, when I learned that, you know, the letter Q, you know, spells the sound, and that's actually two sounds, I was like, what? Or X. <laughs> how did I not know this? Whereas I was doing the sound with my kids um, just today. And yeah. one of them put up his hand. He says, oh, that's like in. I was like, oh, my God, the kids are able to figure this out. I never figured this out because reading came easily to me. Um, so I'm only now learning about all these things in the English language. Like they're there, but I've just never pulled it apart before. Um, so- well, you get those aha moments when you're going through it. Um, <laughs> it it's, it's amazing and humbling. But the thing is, so those 20% that we were talking about, the kids that are going to learn it regardless of instructional manner. And, you know, there's even an additional percent that with at least some phonics instruction, like even a basic level of phonics instruction and the use of these leveled texts, they're going to figure it out. They are going to be proficient readers, but we need to shift our mindset to making sure that we get those 95% of students that research has said can learn to read proficiently in our instructional net that we throw out as whole group instruction. And that's where this right to read, structured literacy, science of reading, speech to print, whatever you want to call it, that's where this movement is coming from. It's making sure that our instruction is giving all students or the most students we can the best chance of learning to read the first time that they are taught with the materials and the instructional strategies that are more likely to bring them success. You are never going to get every single student with one instructional method. And, you know, you talked about differentiation earlier. When you use the decodable text, you're not saying that this is the only thing that we're using in the classroom. You read alouds with amazing texts and you have some, what are sometimes referred to as authentic texts in the classroom. And those are your everyday story picture books that aren't controlled for the language and the words used in them, because there are going to be students that can read those in your classroom. Absolutely. And, and I suppose another caveat, I mean, children should have access to a wide variety of text types. Mm-hmm. It's not that we give them decodable readers and nothing else. Um, we will use the decodable readers to practice their phonics skills, but they also have time to peruse other books at their leisure, to sit and listen to read alouds of high quality children's literature from the teacher or their parents. Um, and I'm not saying burn your leveled books either. Um, like you talked about that, that top 20%. So yeah, they can read anything. doesn't matter what you give them. They're fine. So give your leveled readers to them. And even your kind of average readers once they've established kind of the the phonics basics you know not going into complex phonics once they've got their basics after maybe you know two years at school you know those level texts are fine then as well they haven't learned those bad habits of guessing Mm -hmm. Um, and I suppose the other thing that we didn't say there about um you know using those three cueing um strategies um the brain imaging shows us that that's what struggling readers do. It's what struggling readers do when they can't decode. So decoding should always be our first port of call because that's what skilled readers do. And then the struggling readers, well, if they can't decode, well, then they'll use other strategies. And we don't we want to intentionally teach, teach that. the no. skilled readers, the struggling readers strategies. <laughs> because it's, it's not going to help your your middle average readers or your struggling readers. And it can be even detrimental for some of those, mm-hmm. those struggling readers, like really detrimental. You know, oh. it's, it's, it's a social justice issue. You know, we could talk all night about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the crux of it. Really. We want them to be skilled readers um, and to read as proficiently as they can. So we need to give them the best instruction possible. Definitely. 
Thank you so much for joining me today, Dee. I really have enjoyed this conversation and I can't wait until tomorrow so we get that inside look to see what you're doing in your classroom with those pre-kindergarten, early infancy students that are between that four and five year old age level. And I think it's really important to see what teachers like you who have spent the time to learn about this and who have, you know, accepted that they need to go a little bit outside of their comfort zone and doing some of that fishing on the web uh, to catch the good parts uh, to improve your practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you are interested in, you know, learning more, join one of those signs of reading groups on Facebook. Um, you know, you don't have to go out and buy loads of books, but there's lots of there's lots of great free resources online and those groups will, will, will help you find it. Definitely. Okay, so I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.